Masechet Gitin, Daf Yod Aleph. We're talking about this Mishnah here that says that a document that is made in a non-Jewish court and has non-Jewish signatures is still okay, like a sale document where the transaction is done and the document is there only for proof and it's in front of these judges who care about their reputation and so they'll make sure uh, to say testify that yes, in fact, this sale went through, for example, and therefore we can use that document. However, we cannot use it for uh, because uh, that is not a, uh, it's a Jewish law only, it's particular to Jewish law, and uh, this you need this to actually effectuate, the, you need the, the get to effectuate it. And so a non-Jewish court, signed by non-Jews, uh, cannot effectuate the get. However, Rabbi Shimon disagrees, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And he says that even for a get nashim, abadim, a document, a get signed by non-Jews, in a non-Jewish court is kosher. We'll see why. And in fact, the only time it's a problem is when it's done in a not not in a court, uh, just by a bunch of uh, uh, lay people. Uh, but if it's in a court, then both types are okay. So let's analyze this statement. And we ask, hold on, but non-Jews are not subject to the laws of Kiritut. They don't have Jewish marriage and Jewish divorce. And so how could a non-Jewish court with non-Jewish signatures make a get effective? explains that Rabbi Shimon is following, says Yarad, as if he's descending, maybe why descending, maybe like going down to a minority opinion. Anyway, he's following the opinion of Rabbi El Azad, who says that the witnesses signed on the get are not needed, and you could have no signatures at all on the get. What you need is witnesses to see the transfer of the man giving it to his wife. That's what effectuates the divorce. And therefore, it doesn't matter that this get was written in non-Jewish court. It could have no witnesses at all, and it would still be fine, and that's why it's okay. Hold on. Hold on. Even Rabbi Al-Azhar would agree that if there are bad witnesses, then it's invalid. If there's no witnesses at all, that's fine. You can use it because we have witnesses to the transfer. But if there's invalid witnesses signed on the document, then that is a problem, right? There are a lot of cases where having nothing is okay, but adding something invalid actually makes it worse, right? If you make a, you know, a, a propose a bill. And uh, so, you know, I think this is my opinion. We should take this policy and they'll get voted or not. But if I say, here's a bill, we should do this because um, my astrological science told me this is a good thing to do. Well, then that actually makes it worse, right? You can't, that's not a valid source of authority. Um, so, uh, so to hear, um, having invalid witnesses like non-Jews on the get is actually going to make it no good even according to the B El Azar. So the answer is Hacha Askinan Beshemot Oh, we're talking about where it has names on it that are clearly non-Jewish names, assigned by Jesus and Christopher. So you know that they're not Jewish, and therefore, see the uh, th therefore there's no problem of suspecting that someone will use the same witnesses 
for the Edem Mesida. Uh, see, the problem, if there's no witnesses at all, then fine. We can assume that we ask the witnesses who transferred it, and we see, okay, the transfer under, under good witnesses. The problem is when, when there are names and their names are invalid, then we suspect, hmm, these names are invalid, so perhaps it was transferred also with these same, uh, these same witnesses who are invalid. And so that actually makes it worse, right? So we worry that people are going to, uh, going to use the same, same witnesses. However, if their names are clearly non-Jewish names, then we can uh, allow it because that's the same as having no uh, uh, um, signatures at all. No one's going to con be confused and think that you use Jesus to be a, to, uh, a witness for the transfer of the get. And that's why Rabbi Shimon says, even, even Rabbi Shimon says, okay, even with the qualification uh, that, Rabbi, that Rabbi Abba said here. Okay, good. So now we see that no names is okay. Having completely Gentile names is also okay, according to Rabbi Shimon. Now, what, is it, what are some examples of clearly non-Jewish names? I gave you a couple of examples from uh, a Christian environment, um, but the, these, uh, the rabbis here are living in Babel. What are some Babylonian non-Jewish names? Amada Papa, Kigon Hurmiz, Okay, so these are all uh, Hurmiz is uh, named after the Zoroastrian god Ormazd. Bar uh, is named after Saturn. Bati uh, is a non-kosher fish. So you see that nobody would name, uh, there'd be like a Jew naming his uh, son Zeus, right? Or Poseidon. Um, so nobody would do that uh, in the Roman Empire. So this is in the Persian Zoroastrian Empire. And nobody would use, no Jews would use this name. So these are clearly not Jewish and no one will come to be confused. This is a Dirabanan. The rabbis may get that. Don't use, um, uh, don't, don't sign it because then you might come to use the same uh, witnesses. But here, we're not going to use the same witnesses. Okay. Aval Shemot Mubakin Mai. Okay, so now you're telling me that according to the Bishimon, if it was ambiguous names, um, a name uh, like um, uh, Matthew, a non-Jewish name, it could be Matichahu, it could be a Jewish name, it's used both ways. Um, so then, in that case, you would, uh, Bishamon would agree that if it made in a non-Jewish, if it made in a non-Jewish court, signed by someone with an ambiguous name, um, uh, who's not Jewish, then it would not be good, right? But, uh, so because then I might come to think, oh, I guess they use that for Edemisira also. I guess you're allowed to use a non-Jew for Edemisira. That's too confusing. It's not good. Um, if that's the case, then it doesn't fit with the language of the Mishnah. Because instead of in the Sefa, that can explains to Bishimon, instead of saying, oh, we only said it's a problem to use a non-Jewish non -Jewish, uh, signatures when it's done by a lay pe like by lay people, as opposed to in a court. In a court's okay, and the only problem is lay people. That's what Bishimon's saying. I would agree that you can't use uh, lay non-Jews to sign the document. Well, why, why would you make that as the distinction between an official court and lay people, right? The more important distinction would be within the Jew, within a non-Jewish court itself, when can you use signatures in a, Jew, in a non-Jewish court 
only if it's clearly non-Jewish names. But if it's ambiguous names, then you can't. Right? That's a much more essential distinction that would have that we would have wanted to know. And Bishamon doesn't say that. So we're going to give two explanations to fit it into the Mishnah. That's in fact really what the Mishnah means to say. When can we use non-Jewish signatures Bishamod Muvakin when they're clearly not Jewish? But if you use ambiguous names, then that's the same as signing it with lay people, lay non-Jews, and it would be invalid. So we're just adding in a clarification phrase to say, yes, that is in fact what we mean, but we're trying to say it's the same as. All right. Or another way to read the Mishnah without this problem. The last line is actually not that line of opinion of Rabbi Shimon. Right, look back at the Mishnah so we can see. Um, the Tanakhama says, if it's in a non-Jewish court, a, a sale document is fine, um, uh, even if it's signed by non-Jews, but not get, uh, get Nashim. Rabbi Shimon says, even get Nashim is okay. Okay, that's all he says, period. And then back to Tanakama, right? So the Bishamon here is making no distinction. And so we are assuming he means when it's a clearly non-Jewish name. So that's what he would explain. And the Bishamon doesn't make any distinction. There's no problem that he didn't make this distinction because he also just said a short word. So we clarified what he meant. Fine. And now the distinction here is actually goes back to Tanakama and says, oh, when I said that, um, uh, sale documents are good in a non-Jewish court. That's only if it's a court. But if it's uh, lay people, then it would not be good. And so this distinction is for Tanakama, not for the Bishimon. There's no room to ask. Oh, why did Bishimon? Why didn't you? Why did you make that distinction? Not this distinction. In fact, he didn't make any distinction at all. All right, good. So now that we know that, we're going to have a Braita that is going to support the opinion of the Bishimon. Tanya, Amar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Yosef. Kach Amar Rabbi Shimon, Chachamim, Besaidan. Rabbi Shimon said the following to the sages in Saidan, supporting his opinion that you can use um, a core, a, a, a non-Jewish signatures in a non-Jewish court, even for a get nashim. You see, Rabbi uh, Lazar and Rabbi Shimon, they are students of Rabbi Akiva in the fourth generation. So now he's quoting a Baraita from their teacher, from Rabbi Akiva himself in the third generation and his, say, his colleagues about this. And so they didn't, they never, they didn't argue. There's no argument about any document that is in a non-Jewish court, even if it's signed by non-Jews, it's kosher, even if it's get nashim, everyone agrees, and that is Rabbi Shimon's opinion. So there is some argument, what is it? The only argument is when it's done by laymen, non-Jews, then Rabbi Akiva says, even there it's okay. Hachamim say, no, in that case, it's not, it's not okay. When it comes to financial documents, right, financial documents, Hachamim say not good in a, in, by lay people. Rabbi Akiva says it's okay for lay people. Um, and, but this excludes nashim is okay even if it's done by lay people. 
um, e, uh, um, and uh, assigned by non-Jews. What's the difference, right? Why would Chachamim uh, make a difference? The big Akiva says it's okay across the board, no matter what. Chachamim make a distinction because if it's a um, if it's a, uh, a financial document and it's done in a court, that's okay because the financial document is only there as proof, and we assume that the judges have some, uh, 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 the, even though they're not Jewish, they have uh, um, so their reputation to uphold, and so they're not going to sign a document unless. Unless it is, um, it's true that the sale went through. However, if they're lay people, then they have no reputation that they have to uphold, and then they may just sign any random document, even without checking, to make sure it's really true. So that's why Chachamim say uh, that uh, financial documents are only good in a, in a non-Jewish court, but not with non-Jewish laymen. However, when it comes to a get nashim, it's a different story, because it's actually more lenient. Because get nashim, we're following Adem Mesirah, it's only the ones that transfer, so it doesn't matter where it was written, and who signed it, and who saw it, as long as we have the document and it was seen by kosher Jewish witnesses transferred from the husband to the wife, then it's okay. And therefore, it's actually more lenient. It doesn't matter. Even if it was not by non-Jewish hediot, it would be okay, even according to Chachamim and certainly according to Rabbi Akiva. Okay, so there you go. You see the Bishimon has good source that no one actually, he, he, according to his um, source, uh, nobody disagreed. That um, you can use a uh, get a non-Jewish um, uh, you can use a get that's signed by non-Jews and again here we're assuming that we're talking about the where the names are clearly not Jewish there's no reason to uh, make uh, to be confused um, whereas if it's Jewish sounding names then uh, but they're invalid and actually is a bad that makes it worse okay Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Omer Af elu kesherin v'akom she'en Yisrael chotmin avam akom she'Yisrael chotmin lo Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel offers a new distinction and it depends on the place and the custom of the place it says even the non-Jewish signatures are fine. But yes, that's only in a place where uh, there's a law that not, that Jews cannot be cannot sign on on documents. Um, uh, so in a non-Jewish court. And therefore, since Jews are not allowed to sign, you can be sure that the signatures are not Jewish, right? Whatever their name is, even if it's an ambiguous name, a non-Jewish name, you know for sure that they are not Jewish. Since you're in that place and you know for sure that the signatures on this document from a non-Jewish court are not, not Jewish people, therefore there's no reason for anyone ever to be confused and think that maybe someone will deliver it in front of the, the, the same witnesses. However, if you're in a city where Jews are allowed to sign documents, in uh, even in non-Jewish courts, then we have a problem. Then no matter what the name is, we worry, maybe it's a Jew. Sometimes Jews have uh, non-Jewish sounding names, and then people will come to make the mistake, and they'll say, oh, that time there was a guy named whatever, Matthew, and he signed it and he gave it, and so, and he's probably not Jewish, and so therefore, in this case also, I think I can do it uh, with, uh, with a non-Jew or with an invalid uh, um, witness, and so that will be confusing. And um, so that's uh, so that's it, it, it depends on the place. That's to be Shimon ben Rabban Shimon ben Gamaliel's opinion. Now we ask, Makom she'en Yisrael Chotmin Namel Igzora to Makom she'Yisrael Chotmin. While we're making Gezerot, why don't you make a Gezerah from one place to the other, a place where Jews don't sign? Um, you should make a Gezerah and say non-Jewish signatures are not allowed there because you may become confused with a place where Jews are allowed to sign, right? I saw it done over there and it was allowed and over there I'm going to assume it's the same over here. 
And if I allow it in a place where Jews are allowed to sign, and then it might be, in fact, a, a non-Jewish signature, but it's, uh, maybe it is a Jew, and I saw it, and he, he, uh, he uh, delivered it the other time, I might think that the non-Jewish uh, signer can also be the witness to delivery. Why don't they make that gezerah? And the answer is Shema Bishma Michlif Atra Batra La Michlif. Okay, names are confusing, and someone might uh, mix up one name for another. And uh, since there's a name that might be ambiguous, and I would say, oh, I thought that person was not Jewish, and they used it. Oh, so I think it's allowed. And so it's easy to confuse names and not be sure what exactly the case was. But places are not confusing. Everybody knows in this place, only non-Jews are allowed to sign it. And that's why it was permitted in that case, because surely they did not use those signature, the people that signed there to deliver it. I know for sure they didn't. And I won't come to confuse it with a different place altogether that has different laws where not where Jews can sign. Um, and so in the place where Jews can sign, then I'll know that I have to be careful because um, the, then it would be more confusing because I won't know if the Jews, if the si people that signed are Jewish or not based on the name alone. Okay, now on the same topic. One time a, uh, a group of non-Jews, Arameans, but it means anyone who basically speaks Aramaic, so it comes to be a term for any non-Jews. Um, and so there was a, this group of, of, of non-Jews, not in a court, just a bunch of people. And uh, there was a document that came and Ravina said, oh, it should be, it should be allowed. But Afram said, no, no, it's only in a court that it's allowed, but this is not a court, it's just a group of laymen, and so therefore it should not be good, and so that um, supports uh, the distinction that was made earlier. And, and now a different case, uh, also related, of a Persian document. This is a document that's written in Persian, right, Persian language, and it was written in a Persian court. Um, and it was uh, transferred to uh, uh, to a, a Jew in uh, in the presence of Jewish witnesses. It's a loan document, for example. And so um, here's the thing with with documents and loans. If a loan is an oral loan, right? And so um, right, I, I, I you said you you'll you'll pay me a hundred dollars, and in front of witnesses, but it's an oral loan. Then you can only collect from my available assets, my, my land that I have. But if I already sold land before you come to collect, then it, that is not, uh, there's no lien on it if it's an oral, if it's only oral. Um, whereas if it's a written document, let's say kosher written in a Jewish court with kosher witnesses and all, then you can use that to collect even from land that I already sold since the, since the loan was begun. You have a lien on all of my land. The reason why it makes a difference if it's oral or written is because if something is written and is uh, ratified in court, then there's publicity about it. It's like taking an ad in the newspaper, right? You know, public announcement. Um, this, uh, this person owes this person something. Therefore, any buyer of land will know, oh, there's a mortgage on that land. Oh, so then he'll, he'll think twice or build it into the, his price, right? Or take steps to make sure that his land will not be, uh, have, well, he, will not, he won't have to give up his land. 
Um, so you have to know that. So if there's a call, um, right? There's if there's a if it's written in, in in court and it's written, then there is publicity. There's a call, and everybody will know. Therefore, it can. But if it's only oral, so there was just a couple of people there, and so it doesn't have the publicity. The person that bought the land in the meantime says, "I didn't know that there was a mortgage on it. That's no fair." Okay, so that's the general rule. Now we have here a document that's a loan document but it's a Persian loan document so what's the law regarding this Rava said you can only uh, collect with it from free property non lien pro not not property that I that I sold only property that I currently have um, and in other words it's like an oral um, it's like an oral loan um, it is considered proof like two witnesses to an oral loan but it's not like a written loan so it's something so it's it is good proof but not fully as if it were written now we ask why should it be good at all the witnesses don't know even know how to read it so how could they testify that you know when they see this when they when they see it transferred what are they written what are they testifying to if they don't know how to read it and the answer is let's say they know Persian this is very interesting because we get some of the real life right at uh, most people did not know Persian language but there were some people that did right they uh, they they elected to take that in high school um, elected into you know Persian or Spanish they took Persian okay hold on in order for a document to be to be a valid it has to be one that cannot be forged in our language we would say you can't write it in pencil right you can't write a document in pencil but it has to be written in, in pen um, so that it can in those documents they can even though they're all written in ink but you can scrape off the ink erase it and put in a different number so you can't use a document like that and the answer is bida afisa and we're talking about where it was the document the, the parchment was processed with gall and uh, that makes the the ink stick permanently if you try to scrape it off you'll see that it was scraped off. Um, so, they, yeah, we're talking about that case. Another uh, law for a, va a document to be valid is after you have to summarize uh, the topic at the end, the essential summary at the end, so that you don't go and add more things afterwards. So that's an essential part. Veleka and this Persian document. See, the Persian courts are not careful generally to have all these things that a Jewish court would require. Veleka and the answer debe mehadad. I'll take a case where it does. Right, this case it did in fact have all those requirements, and so it's valid for uh, proof. And that's why yes, you can use it as proof that and the person has to pay. And now we go to the other extreme. Oh, if so, if it if it's written with permanent marker and it has the summary document, um, and the witnesses knew how to read Persian, in that case, it should be the same as a loan written with a good shtad, a kosher shtad, and uh, should be should be able to collect even from mortgage properties, even properties that the. Uh, a lender already uh, sold um, so that the, the borrower already uh, sold he should have to now he could that lender can go and pay back
As the answer is, let le kala Oh, now because it's written in Persian court, it's not going to have publicity among the Jewish community. So among the Jewish community, when something is a loan document is written in court, right, then I don't know, they have some kind of poster board or something. They let the word out. People know. And uh, everybody, you know, they'll, they'll go and check. Maybe they have some kind of registry. And uh, so people will know that there's a, uh, a, a loan, this, there's a loan out um, connected to that land. Whereas if done in a Persian court, then it will not have publicity among the Jewish community. And that's why it's the same as an oral loan, and one cannot collect from the mortgage properties. Now, moving to Israel, if you have a get nashim and the, 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 the witnesses signed on it are Jewish, but they have non-Jewish names. What do you think? What is the law? Rabbi Yochanan said, well, we did have a few cases like this, um, but the names were Lukos and Los. Lukos sounds like uh, Luke, um, Luke Skywalker, uh, also one of the names of the... Uh, uh, of the of the uh, apostles of um, in early Christianity, um, so los meaning lion would be like you know today Leon or or Leo, and so these are um, some uh, these non-Jewish names, and we permitted it and we said it's okay. So therefore, um, at least in some cases of non-Jewish names, yes, it's okay. Now let's analyze. Uh, only those names of Biochanan permitted because really these are totally non-Jewish names. It's very, very rare to find a Jew whose name is Luke. I can't think of anyone today named Luke, although there's lots of Leos and Leons. It would be like uh, naming uh, your kid Abdallah, although it was a Jewish name, Chacham Abdallah Somech, one of the great poskim. Um, but nowadays it would be very rare. Maybe you could find one. And so if someone signed the thing, Abdallah, that would be okay um, because no, everyone will assume, even if it is Jewish, um, will assume it's not Jewish, which is a good thing for uh, for Gitin, because since everyone assumes it's not Jewish, they will know, assume also, that it was transferred in front of good Jews, and won't come to think that you can transfer a get in front of non-Jews. So those are fine. But other names that are ambiguous, and they're non-Jewish names, but there are many Jews with that name, and there it would be a problem. This may be like an example today would be like Mary, which is basically a Christian name, uh, but my grandmother, who came from um, from uh, Aleppo, her name was Midiam. She got to Ellis Island. They said, what's your name? They wrote Mary. And then she went by Mary. And her grandchildren are also called Mary. And so it's a pretty, um, I wouldn't say common, but it's pretty found in the, in the at least in my community, uh, people with such a name. There's also a bunch of Pauls, even though that's a pretty Christian name. It's not so common. Um, but uh, Mark is actually quite common, even though that's also uh, one of the uh, books of the Christian Bible. Okay, so you have a bunch of names like that. So those examples where it's a pretty common Jewish name, um, but it's not totally a Jewish name. So it's found in Israel, even though it's basically a Christian name. In these cases, it would not be the Biochanan would not say it's okay because since many people are named Mark and Matthew, uh, Mark and and Paul, uh, many Jews are called that. Um, so. People will see that and assume, oh, look, they they were the they were the uh, um, uh, the, uh, the the witnesses that 
saw the transfer. Oh, I guess you're allowed to transfer with non-Jews. So that's why we won't allow it. In that case, even though we would allow it in very, very clearly non-Jewish names like Abdullah. Okay, Etibe, Resh Lakish asks another question. Gitin, uh, challenges rather, Rabbi Yochanan, um, uh, from the following source. Uh, if you have a get that comes from a foreign land and there's witnesses on it, even though the witnesses have non-Jewish names, it's kosher because um, out there in, uh, outside of Eretz Israel, many people name their kids non-Jewish names. Okay, so first of all, just as an aside, historically, this is quite, quite interesting that there was a difference in naming practices in Jewish communities in Israel and outside of Israel. And I think that's true also today in Israel, all kinds of, um, you know, biblical names and Talmudic names have been revived and, you know, very Jewish names and uh, people with other kinds of names get uh, Hebraicized. Um, whereas outside, depending on the community, but um, in other lands, people tend to name their kids uh, but, uh, similar names to the culture around them because um, just they hear the names and they're popular names and say they, so they do that. Okay, so that's very interesting. Anyway, Reshakish is saying from based on this Tosefta, look, a get has signature and has a, um, a non-Jewish sounding name. That's fine, right? Even the, uh, if so, because Jews are 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 signing, are um, are giving their name, uh, their kids names like these non-Jewish names, and it's okay. But you just said that only Lucas, only Luke, a very very extreme. Nobody names their kids that. That would be okay. But other non-Jewish names that are more common is not allowed. Over here, you said it is allowed. So how could that be? Oh, here this Tosefta says it is allowed. How could it be Yochanan say no? And the answer is Hatam Kedekatani Tamam Oh, no, it's different. You're talking about two different contexts. Outside of Israel, uh, where people commonly name their kids, um, you know, all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of common names. So then they, they're not, no, no longer considered non-Jewish names, right? Because they're so common and, uh, among the Jewish community. And that's why these are just simply Jewish names. And so we say, oh, whatever the name is, okay, fine, they're considered, uh, that we, we assume that they're Jewish. I mean, you have to either ratify the signatures or say, right? the other, all the other laws that apply to it are fine. But just because you see a Jewish name coming from, uh, America, a non-Jewish name on a get coming from America, you don't assume the person is not Jewish. Whereas he was talking about a question Rabbi Yochanan was talking about within Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, if you see something that's, uh, that's signed by, um, um, by uh, Paul, then you say, hmm, that uh, sounds uh, ambiguous, then that would be no good. Okay, it sounds not Jewish. It's predominantly not Jewish, so that's no good. Okay, a different version of this exchange. It's not that Resh Lakish asked um, uh, a challenge from this Braita, but rather he asked a question without a Braita. He just asked a question that happened to be the same as it, what was in the Braita. His question is, okay, Rabbi Yochanan, you're telling me the law in Israel where most people use Jewish names, and then it's kind of rare that people use non-Jewish names, and so that's why in Israel for someone to name their kid 
Paul, right? That would be uh, unusual, and so fine. That's not would not be allowed in Israel. Um, but if someone's outside of Israel and people name their kids that name, um, then uh, sounds like it should, should be okay. Um, another name. There's a couple of them. Franklin, right? Well, I had an uncle named uh, Frank, named uh, after FDR because he was a popular president, and uh, nobody in Israel would name their kid that. So this would be, but it was a popular name when he was president after he was president. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of Franks. So then if you see someone with that name, you then uh, from coming from America, then you say, oh, fine. Yeah, lots of people, they use all kinds of names um, uh, when they are in other countries. And so then uh, we there's no there's no need to assume that it's non-Jewish only in Israel. Then, if it sounds like a non-Jewish name, we have to assume that the person is the, the signatory is not Jewish. And if it's totally not ambiguous, like Luke, fine. Then there's no reason to make it gezerah. But if it's if it's somewhat ambiguous in Israel, then it's not allowed because people will confuse it and think that you can use it for um, you could use uh, non-Jews for edem um, as well. All right, fascinating discussion about names and places and uh, and the practices of different Jewish communities. And now we get to the next Mishnah. So a husband uh, tells a messenger, please go and take, be a messenger and take this get nashim to my wife. Or he says, take this get shichrur avadim to my evid, deliver it to him. Because I want to either want to get divorced or I want to free him. But then he changes his mind, right? The guy walks out the door, the shaliach walks out the door, and then he changes his mind. If he wants to change his mind, in either case, he can. It wasn't delivered yet to his wife or to the slave. So since it's not delivered yet, he can change his mind. That's only the opinion of Bimir. Chachamim disagree. And they say, regarding a get nashim, the husband can retract, but not regarding the uh, freeing of a slave. Why? Because the basic principle is you can do something for a person's advantage uh, without him being there, like if I pick up a watch and I know, oh, you know what, this person will like the watch. Or example, we'll see on the next half, if I uh, go and I go to Pea, corner of a field, uh, and I, I say, you know, you know what, that poor person, he needs something. I'm going to take this Pea for them. Um, that's a more complicated case because then I'm taking it away from other poor people, right? But let's say the watch, no one's a sefkir, I take it for him. So then it is his because I can do something for someone's good, for their advantage, even without their knowledge. Where Whereas I cannot do something for someone else's disadvantage, disadvantage unless I ask them first, right? If I say, oh, this person, he would love to buy this coat. So you know what? I will buy it on his behalf and then he'll have to pay for it, right? I'm going to put it on his credit card without his knowledge. That you can't do because then he's paying for it. He's giving money and maybe he wouldn't want to pay for it if because he's being disadvantaged in that way. That's a general rule. Now let's apply it to these two cases. Um, if a, uh, if a um, owner does not want to feed his slave, he doesn't have to. It's a good idea to feed your slave because if you don't feed him, he will die. He will not be able to work and then you'll lose your capital. Um, but in the same sense, you know, uh, unfortunately, slavery is like owning 
cattle. So in the same sense that you should feed your cattle so that they can work and and so on, right? So you can yeah, they they make sense to feed a slave. But legally, um, master does not have an obligation to free his slave. Therefore, it's objectively better for a slave to go free. Right? Better to be free than to be a slave. And could be he's even if he's being treated okay and getting fed but there's no financial obligation. So the slave has no idea if he's going to be fed tomorrow. And therefore, here's how it works. When the owner gives the get shichrur avadim to the messenger, because it's good for the slave, so the messenger can acquire it on behalf of the slave, just like he can be a messenger for the master, he can also be a messenger for the slave, even without the slave asking him to. And so he says, oh, wow, that's so nice. You're given, give me this document to free that guy. Wow, what a nice person you are that you did this. I accept it on behalf of the um, of the uh, of the slave now there's a machlok at whether it actually it takes effect right away maybe it depends on his uh, his thoughts right if the messenger says okay I accept it I'm gonna accept it on behalf of the of the slave then it would happen right away or maybe it doesn't actually doesn't actually go free till he delivers it but nevertheless so once it's out of the uh, master's hands so it's irrevocable because the messenger could take it on behalf of the slave that's the idea regarding a slave however when it comes to a husband and wife um, a husband must provide for his wife he is legally obligated to give her food clothing and shelter as part of the basic conditions of the ketubah it's even in the torah and therefore to be a wife is actually a good thing you have guaranteed income for the rest of your life together and um, and therefore uh, some uh, some women want to get out of the marriage okay but some women would not want to get married she says oh no now I'm not going to be provided for what am I going to eat tomorrow and so therefore it's up to her to decide and it really is uh, uh, financially to her disadvantage to be divorced and that's why the slave the messenger cannot acquire the get on behalf of the wife um, so it's she's not divorced until he actually gives it to the wife and therefore the husband at any point can go to the messenger and say wait I changed my mind don't deliver and he can revoke it and that's according to Hamim so that is the difference between them now Rabbi Meir says hold on hold on regarding a slave also uh, there is a disadvantage so Rabbi uh, Meir says why would you say that a slave is okay if that's if that's your reasoning what's the disadvantage for a slave to go free if a slave is a slave of a kohen master is a kohen then the slave can eat teruma same thing is true with all of a kohen's household his wife his children his slaves they can all eat teruma so when he frees his slave now the slave is no longer owned by a kohen and he cannot eat teruma and that's the same thing for a wife once he divorces his wife if she's a bat israel now she can no longer eat teruma so to be made argues is a disadvantage in both cases and therefore in both cases uh, uh the husband should be able to take it back right because even for um a, a slave uh right that's what they argued on Khamim say we agree with the Yenashim, but nashir abadim doesn't matter for a slave also there is a disadvantage and you have to go and ask him would you want to be free oh and he might say you know what i really like eating teruma i want to remain a slave um so that's to be his argument Khamim say back to him no no his right to eat teruma is not a right that he has as a slave 
but rather it's only because he's the property of the owner. So the owner has no, no need, no obligation to give him any food at all. So the owner could give him no food, not teruma, not not chulin, not any food. So really this is, this is not considered a financial advantage because he has no guarantee, no legal claim from the, from the master for anything. And uh, so this is basically just a side benefit that he happens to be owned by. And therefore, if, he's, if he happens to give him food, it could be teruma. But it's a side benefit, not an essential legal benefit. Um, and that's why Chachami make a distinction and say, for a slave, always better to be free. For a wife, um, there is a legal advantage to being married. Um, so you have to, it depends on her. And therefore, it is revocable. Okay, So they're sitting before Rabbi Yirmiyah. That means Rabbi Yirmiyah is the teacher. And these are two students that are sitting in front of their teacher. And Rabbi Yirmiyah was dozing off. Uh, this happens. I had a teacher once that fell asleep. While, I always fell asleep as a student, but I had a teacher once who fell asleep while he while he was teaching. All right. Anyway, he stayed up late learning Torah. He's taking a nap. And so Rav Huna says, "Oh, they learned this Mishnah, and I I could see that according to Chachamim in the Mishnah, if someone goes and grabs money." from a creditor that is a good acquisition. In other words, if A um, owes money to B, now um, the right a, a owes money uh, um, uh, to B. So B uh, can go and let's say he can go and grab A's uh, property, can go grab his car and uh, uh, to pay for his credit. Okay, fine. Let's say that is true. Now let's say a third party, right? I see. I, I I know that A owes money to B. Can I go and steal? Not steal. Take repossess A's car and then give it to B on his behalf. And it seems from here, Rav Huna says, that yes, you can. Tofes lebaal hov kana. Someone who seizes property from a creditor, yes, it works. What's the analogy? In this case, right, we're going to follow the Av uh, Eved example, where according to Chamim, it's not, not retractable. So the messenger is acting as a third party, and he is, in essence, uh, he has the freedom of the slave in his hands, and the master says, hey, give that back to me. And he says, no, I'm not giving it back to you. And he runs, and he gives the slave his own freedom. And so you see, he's a third party and he's taking something and giving it to someone else even at this point against the wishes of the master and that's permitted so too I can seize the car from A and give it to B and that would be a valid transaction and then the other student there says what if it will be to the detriment of someone else um, in the example of a loan, let's say A owes money to many people. And so now if I go and uh, possess his car and give it to B, so then only B will get paid and all the other people, let's say they has no money left, right, will not get paid. So can I, I, can I seize something from A in a case where it will be in detriment to someone else? And Abislaq Bar Yosef, the other student says, yes, because here it's a detriment to the, the, the master because now he has no slave anymore. Um, and so it made sense to him that it would be, shouldn't be make any difference. And um, while they're talking, the teacher woke up. 
I really did have a teacher who would go to sleep and we would have discussions and then they wake up in the middle and correct us and he'd correct us all. He was listening in his sleep. Okay, Amalehu Dardike says children, right? He's calling them, you know, um, in a kind way, saying you're students, right? You're children and you're saying something that doesn't make sense. This is no, Rabbi Yochanan ruled that if you grab something from a creditor in a case where it will be a detriment to other people, then it's invalid, right? Those other people will come and have a claim and said, "How could you? How could you take your car? Take this car on behalf of B? He also owes money to C, D, and E, and so you can't do it." And if you'll say, "Oh, but look, in our Mishnah, you have the messenger is going to give it to the slave, even though it causes loss for the master." Well, no, that's not the same because because whoever says give it, meaning the master said, here, take this document and give it to the slave. Once he give, issues that order, it's as if he's saying acquire it for him as well, even though the the master only appointed um, the, uh, the the messenger to be a messenger on the master's behalf to take it. A tenu, a tenu one, but it's as if he appointed him to be a messenger for the slave and said and say saying here accept this on behalf of the slave which you can do because right the master can give the slave uh, freedom even without him being there because it's objectively a good thing and therefore when he says tenu we consider it like zechu and therefore you can't call this a detriment to someone else it's a detriment a detriment to the to the master the master gave it he agreed to it um, and so you can't call it that and therefore there's no challenge from our mishnah and so while yes you can see something from a a creditor um, after the debtor, if it doesn't, if it doesn't harm anyone else, but if it does have a disadvantage to someone else, then it's not allowed, and that's what it'd be to me out when he wakes up, corrects the students, and tomorrow we'll see uh, the machlo, the full machloket about this case. Baruch Adonai Amen, amen.